Well, we're going to be in the best known of all resurrection passages this morning, Revelation. Uh, Just kidding, Revelation 20 is not known, perhaps, but it is a look at our future resurrection. So I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. We'll walk through this passage this morning. If you don't have a copy of God's Word there, I invite you to take one of the Pew Bibles in front of you. It's page 976 in that Pew Bible. And if you can't find that, it's just a couple pages from the end. It's right at the back there. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word that you own and use personally, we would love for you to take that, uh, keep it, read it. Uh, nothing would delight us more than you, than you getting to know God better through His Word. As we work through this passage this morning, we'll see that Jesus' resurrection guarantees His ultimate victory and our future resurrection. Jesus' resurrection guarantees His ultimate victory and our future resurrection. So if you have a copy of God's Word now, we'll read the first three verses in Revelation 20. John writes, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit. And shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Well, how long is a thousand years? Well, it's 12,000 months. Ten centuries. 52,143 weeks. 365,250 days. Or maybe it's just one day. In 1 Peter 3, 8 tells us that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. But when we come to a book like Revelation, it's actually a good bit more complex than this. Revelation 1, verse 1 introduces this book to us this way, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. But if you dig a little bit further, this word revelation actually is the word apocalypse. So revelation is apocalyptic literature, which means that there are symbols and things happening here that have a meaning beyond the actual word itself. All of this means that people love debating what's going on here in Revelation chapter 20. When these things take place, if they've already taken place, if they are taking place, or they will take place. And when they take place, how long do they take? And this is a good bit more complicated by the fact that this is the only time in the Bible where we find this thousand-year period, the millennium, mentioned. And it's mentioned six times in one chapter, but nowhere else. But suppose, I told you this morning, that the point of Revelation 20 isn't to figure out how long a thousand years is, or when exactly this will happen. To jump back to the beginning of the book again, Revelation 1 verse 1 tells us what? This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, revelation is in our Bibles to help us see who Jesus is, what he does, and how he implements his reign. It's written to help us see Jesus. And Revelation 20, in particular, helps us see more clearly the power of the resurrection. 
When Christians celebrate Easter, we celebrate a real moment in real time. Something that happened in history. Jesus Christ, the eternal God, came to earth as a human being, lived a perfect life, suffered, died, and rose again. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 summarizes it this way. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. And then after this, Paul lists hundreds of eyewitnesses who saw Jesus Christ risen from the grave. Well, that historical fact matters. Because as Paul writes later in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So that historical moment matters. But the resurrection of Jesus isn't merely a past event. It's a historical moment with ongoing power. Power that lasts into eternity. You see, the ultimate power of the resurrection wasn't realized in a tomb 2,000 years ago. It's going to be realized in the lives, the risen reign of the risen Son, and the resurrection of all who place their faith in Him. You probably know the date, July 4th, 1776, signing of the Declaration of Independence. You may not know the date, June 21, 1788. You see, that day is the day that New Hampshire ratified the United States Constitution. They were the ninth of 13 states, which meant that now it is the governing document in our nation. And for better or worse, that document governs our nation still today. You see, that moment, those people sitting in New Hampshire signing a piece of paper, it meant something then. But those signatures have ongoing power in our lives today. The resurrection isn't merely a past event. It has ongoing, everlasting power. In a much greater way, the resurrection of Jesus isn't something that just did Jesus good when he raised from dead to life. Oh, it was good for him, but it's much greater than that. It does us good today as we are raised from death to life in Christ. And today's passage gives us a picture of a future resurrection coming for God's children. Satan is bound. And we have two primary actors in these three verses we've read thus far. An angel from heaven and the ancient serpent, Satan. Not hard to figure out who the good guy and the bad guy is here. These verses ring with an epic conflict more than worthy of C.S. Lewis or J.R.R. Tolkien. First, let's see the way this passage describes Satan. He is immensely powerful. Our family enjoys both the books and movies, Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. After a couple of times reading through The Hobbit, we're now re-watching the three films, The Hobbit. And if you know this series at all, you know the most powerful creature in the book and the movie is who? It's a great dragon, Smaug. The one who lives under the mountain. He describes himself in the book this way. My armor is like tenfold shields. My teeth are swords. My claws, spears. The shock of my tail, a thunderbolt. My wings, a hurricane. And my breath, death. You see, when Smaug breathes, he vibrates the entire mountain like an earthquake. He's an immensely terrible foe. 
Well, Satan took the form of a beautiful serpent in the Garden of Eden back in Genesis 3. And the imagery comes full circle here in Revelation, but the picture here is terrifying rather than beautiful. The dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan. He's called the great dragon in Revelation 9, and 1 Peter 5, 8 tells us that he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He is immensely powerful, but not only is he powerful, he is incredibly deceitful. What does this powerful dragon spend his time doing? Verse 3, he deceives the nations. If you read a little bit further, verse 8, he comes out to deceive the nations. And verse 10, he deceived them, the nations. Revelation 12, 9 says, Satan deceives the whole world. Modern portrayals of the devil tend to be, I don't know, humorous, winsome, or attractive. Someone who's a funny person. Well, this is proof that what the Bible says is true. He is deceitful. He's nothing to laugh at. He's terrifying. But he takes reality and he twists it so that we believe a lie. This has been going on since the beginning of time. 2 Corinthians 11.3 tells us Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning. John 8.44, Jesus says he is a liar and the father of lies. It's what he does. So how does this incredibly powerful being deceive? 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen tells us he disguises himself as an angel of light. So what's dark appears light. What's bad appears good. Do you ever wonder how people can do something so wrong, so wicked, and yet be convinced they're doing something good? How could a highly advanced nation like 20th century Germany be convinced that the annihilation of a people group, genocide of the Jews, is a good thing. How does a despotic ruler like Vladimir Putin convince people in the information age that Ukraine is the aggressor and deserves to be conquered? How does a nation like ours with advanced science, details, detection of life beyond what anyone before could ever imagine, how can we fool ourselves into thinking the slaughter of innocent children in the womb is a good thing? It's not because people are stupid. It's because Satan is so deceptive. He's so powerful. He deceives the whole world masquerading as an angel of light. Satan is powerful. He's deceitful, but he is no match for the armies of the Lord of hosts. The angel of the Lord is more powerful still. Well, when the angel comes from heaven, what does he bring? He brings two things, a key and a chain. He seizes Satan and he binds him and he casts him into the pit. He shuts the pit and he seals it. And what can Satan do about it? Not a thing. <laughs> I love this. It's almost like God is proving a point. Like, I don't have to take care of you myself. I'm going to send one of my lieutenants to take care of you. God sets the boundaries for Satan's dominion, and one day he will fully and finally destroy him. Well, in spite of Satan's power, God is at work resurrecting his people. Let's pick up now, reading in verse 4. John writes, Then I saw thrones. And seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. 
Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ. And they will reign with him for a thousand years. Well, after seeing the angel bind Satan, John sees thrones. People with the authority to judge. And who are these people who reign from the thrones? Faithful Christians who become co-rulers with Christ. Verse 4 describes these people this way. Those to whom the authority to judge was committed. The souls of those who had been beheaded for Jesus and for the word of God. Those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and not received the mark on their foreheads. And what do these people, these faithful people do? Verse 4, they come to life and they reign with Christ. Daniel 7.22 tells us that the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Well, what do the children of God do in heaven? We don't just sit around playing harps and diapers. We reign with Christ. We advance the character and cause of Christ, not because he needs our help, but because he's a gracious king who shares his kingdom with his subjects. But not only does Jesus give us the right to rule, he guarantees that death has no power over God's children. Resurrection isn't just a move from death to life. Oh, oh it is. It is that. But it's, it's much more. It's a move from powerless to a life filled with the power of Christ. Now, the sovereign Lord in all of this is the triune God, the one who makes us priests of God and of Christ, according to verse 6. But look at the way this passage teaches us about resurrection. Verse 4, they come to life. Verse 5, this is the first resurrection. Verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Verse 6, again, over such the second death has no power. Now, we're going to circle back here again at the end. But let's see what happens when Satan is released from bondage. Satan will be defeated. Let's pick up now in verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. Verse 9, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints of the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beasts and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So when Satan's temporary bondage is ended, he is released to wreak havoc freely. He engages in the same work he's always been doing. Verse 8, he comes out and does what? Deceives the nations. But this time he goes a step further in his deception. He goes out to battle. Verse 8, he marshals his forces and their number is like the sand of the sea. And then we meet these two guys, Gog and Magog, or as one person said, Gog and his Irish friend, Magog. Gog and Magog are simply names representing the nations who oppose God and his people. 
It appears in this moment that the days of the church are numbered. Verse 9, the saints in the beloved city are surrounded. It's true. If the battle is about size and numbers, the church doesn't stand a chance against the great dragon and his armies. Reading this passage this week reminded me of being a kid and Saturdays we would work hard and we'd play hard. We lived out in the country and we'd work hard and then at the end of the day we'd get together and we had a basketball court there at our house and we'd play. I'm one of several children, one of nine, and so you'd play and as we were playing, the older kids just tended to win. That's just how it went. But occasionally, dad would step on the court. And it didn't matter who was on dad's team, because dad was going to win, right? He could choose the youngest member of the family and play with that person, and he wins the game. Because the outcome is assured. It doesn't matter how many Other hosts are surrounding him. Dad is so powerful, so tall, so big that dad always wins. You see, if the right person's on your team, you're always going to win. The right ally can turn obvious defeat into victory. And the people of God have the ultimate trump card. The Father, our Father in heaven. Exodus 14, the people of Israel stand on the banks of the Red Sea. Behind them is the powerful Egyptian army. They're panicked. Their foe is far superior in number, far superior in strategy and armament. And in this moment, when destruction is at hand, Moses says to the people, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. And and if you know the word of God, you know this is an exception. This is not an exception. Elijah on Mount Carmel, fire from heaven, consumes the sacrifice. As we saw a few weeks ago, Elisha in the city of Dothan, surrounded by a mighty Syrian army. And the Lord protects Elisha and his people with chariots of fire. So, when the prince of darkness, grim, with his mighty armies, comes to battle, what do we do? Martin Luther tells us the answer in his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress. The prince of darkness, grim, we tremble not for him. One little word will fell him. So what happens? Do the armies of the living God triumph because we're so powerful? No, verse 9 Fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Once again, the Lord wins the battle and Satan is judged eternally. The contrast is stark. Satan's initial bondage, temporary. Verse 2 says it's for a thousand years. Verse 3 says he'll be released for a little while. Verse 7 says he'll be released from prison. You see, Satan is bound temporarily so that his power will be destroyed eternally. And the fate that awaits him is terrible in verse 10. Satan and his allies will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And this sure judgment of Satan means that God's children need fear no evil. What do you fear? I mean, when we're young, our fears might take the form of the proverbial monster under the bed. 
imaginary beings with no real power. But as we grow older, our fears grow more sophisticated. Elementary, middle, high school. The monster's taken on a different form. Rejection by peers. College brings its own sets of fears. Rejection by more peers. Lack of academic success. No spouse. No clear life plan. But then the good news is you reach adulthood and all your fears go away. There ain't no fears in adulthood. There are no monsters under the bed. I mean, we don't lose sleep over work or kids or marriage or extended family problems. No more problems, right? In these seasons, our fear doesn't look so much like a monster under the bed as preoccupation with the concerns of life. I mean, it doesn't matter what phase of life you're in, whether you're young or old, whether you don't know much about life or whether life's taught you more than you want to know. When you're old, when you fear the loneliness and brokenness that old age brings, when you can't do what you want to do, your mind says yes and your body says no. The storms of life surround us like the armies of Satan surround the camp of the saints. It's a number of years ago, one of our kids was quite young, still living in Greenville, and had a cold. Coughing all night, couldn't get it stopped. It's cold, as cold winter, I guess, as we get here, but cold night. So we stepped outside. Huge storm. Sitting on our front porch, thunder, rain, lightning, terrifying. But I couldn't help but think, as I sat there holding my child, child's not worried about it at all. Baby's not concerned about the storm. Why? Because she's in daddy's arms. Now, if I walked out that same door in the middle of that cold winter night, in the middle of that storm, and I set that child on the ground and walked back inside, how's baby going to feel? Terrified. Environment, in both cases, is the same, right? Surrounded by the storm, terrifying noise, rain, lightning, thunder, cold, what makes a difference? Daddy's arms. That's all. You see, when we encounter the storms of life, they don't change. But our awareness of our Father's care changes how we encounter the storms. And you can walk into the same path, the same moment, terrified. Or you can walk knowing there is no safer place than surrounded by the love of your heavenly father. It's not what's going on around us. It's the awareness of the care of our father in the storm. That's what Psalm 23 tells us. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. 
because I'm so strong. I will fear no evil because I've learned so much. I will fear no evil because I'm a can-do person and I can do this. No. I will fear no evil for you are with me. You are with me. There is no moment you need to fear the forces of evil. The end is written. The outcome is assured. We don't fear evil, not because evil isn't powerful. Satan is immensely powerful, but because God is with us. And isn't this the promise of the gospel? Matthew 1.23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive which and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus Christ, the eternal God, came from heaven, born as a baby, so that you can know that God will never leave you. Not only is Satan defeated, all of God's enemies will be judged. Let's pick up now in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what is written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The great white throne judgment. The moment when all who haven't placed their faith in Christ stand before God. And the one seated on the throne is terrible in his greatness. Verse 11 tells us that all creation seeks to flee his justice from his presence. Earth and sky fled. No place was found for them. But no one escapes. Everyone, great and small, stands before the throne. Verse 3, the sea gave up the dead who were in them. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them. The books are open. You heard of cooking the books? You can't cook these books. But we've got two sets of books. On the one hand are the books. These books are terrifying. They record everything we've done. Verse 12, the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the truth is, no one wants to be judged by what's written in these books. But you might say, on the whole, I've done pretty well. No murder, no theft, no adultery. Until we remember that God doesn't judge us by our expectations, but by his perfectly righteous standards. No adultery. Have you ever in your life looked at someone in a way you shouldn't? Taken a second glance? Jesus said everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has committed adultery with her in his heart. Matthew 5, 28. Okay, well, at least I'm not a murderer. Ever resented someone so much that it would make you happy if they failed? Ever been glad to see someone crash and burn? Ever lost your cool? I mean, 
Just a little bit. Jesus said, everyone who's angry with his brother is liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire, Matthew 5, 22. You see, whether it's murder, adultery, theft, lying, gossip, slander, or a host of other sins, we all stand guilty before God. There aren't two groups of people in our city, sinners and the good people in the churches. We're all sinners. All sinners who have fallen short of God's glory and righteous expectations. No one wants to be judged by what's written in these books, but there is another book. Verse 12, then another book was opened, which is the book of life. Life? Life? That sounds good. I want that. Verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Those whose names aren't written in this book meet the same fate as Satan, the great serpent. Well, how? I mean, how do I get my name in that book? I don't want to be judged by what's in the other books. We said there aren't two groups here, sinners and good people. We're all sinners. It's true. God's word is clear and experience teaches us this is true. However, there are two groups. But it's two different groups. We're all sinners, but there are two kinds of sinners. Condemned sinners and forgiven sinners. The truth is, we're all bad. The best of us falls short of God's glory. The best of us, as Paul said, is the chief of sinners. We're all sinners, but those who confess and forsake their sin and run to Christ are forgiven their sins. Romans 5 tells us we're all born into this world enemies of God. But God's love is so immense, so personal, that God even loves his enemies. It's unbelievable. Romans 5.10 tells us, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Well, how does this happen? How do enemies become friends with God? Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for you to move to him. He comes to you. While we're sinners, Christ pursues us. But we're running our own way, rebels, shaking our fists in the face of God. God loves us, God pursues us, and God sends his son to die for us. Not because we deserve it, not because we've taken the first step, but because God is love. And God shows his love for us in that while we are sinners, Christ died for us. How do we get our names in that book? Acts 16, 31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Saved from all this, saved from this judgment, saved from the lake of fire. Would you turn from your sin? Would you run to Jesus and accept him? Today is Easter, Resurrection Sunday. But the reality is, we celebrate Easter every Sunday. Just by being here. If you want to be someone who regularly experiences the power of Jesus' resurrection, you experience that power in the gathered assembly of people who have confessed faith in Christ. We call it church. Well, what then does the power of Jesus' resurrection do for us now and in the future? We look back for a moment at verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection 
Over such, the second death has no power. See, the second death is the defeat and casting of all who don't know Jesus into the lake of fire forever. We see it in verse 14. All who don't know Jesus are cast there. Satan's cast there. His armies are cast there. Death itself is cast there. And if this most terrible judgment has no power, no power over God's children, what do we need to fear? Nothing. Resurrection isn't just a move from death to life. It's a move from powerless to the power of Christ resting upon us. What is it that Romans 1.16 says about the gospel? The gospel is what? The power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. So it's not only that we don't need to fear, Romans 6 tells us, we don't have to sin. Sin will have no dominion over you. You don't have to lose your mind when your kids are stressing you out. You don't have to engage in that same behavior that just leaves you feeling so terrible afterward. The power and promises of God are ours in Christ. God's children don't need to be bashful, fearful, or guilty. Do you remember the books? You know, those books? The books with everything you've done written in them? Well, what's written in the other book? The book of life. Our names. Our names. Because of what Jesus has done. Those books, they got everything you've done. This book, because of what Christ has done. Our confidence and our hope and our power rest not in ourselves, not in our goodness, but in the goodness of Christ. Now people say, well, I don't like the church because the church is full of hypocrites. You're right. You're right. We're all at some level pretending none of us is good, but we're not here because of us. We're here because of Jesus, of his goodness and his righteousness. Our goodness is like filthy rags. We don't hold it up and say, God, here you go. We say, God, look at Jesus. Our names are written in the book of life because of Jesus. So we can be filled with joy in the face of terrible trials. We can face death without fear. We can look forward to the return of Christ full of hope and confidence, knowing that death itself holds no power over us. Who? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or the worst thing you've ever done? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Those aren't my words. Those are God's, Romans chapter 8. Let's take a moment now and respond to this news, this good news. We'll respond to the word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally. And then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now.
God, we thank you for the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. That nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus. Lord, we know a terrible fate awaits all of those who don't turn to Christ. Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning grappling with whether this could be true. Grappling with whether they can place their trust in Christ. Grappling with loving their sin instead of the Savior. Lord, I pray that they would trust him today. Find mercy, grace, and forgiveness at the cross. Lord, none of us is worthy in coming to you. You take broken sinners and make us saints through the blood of Christ. We praise you for this work in Jesus' name. Amen.